Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast with myself, Colin Lambert. And with me as always, but not from New York, this time from Copenhagen, is Galen Stops, who has been released from his US um, house arrest of several months. <laughs> um, Galen, before we started, I mean, I have to I have to share a little bit of disappointment on my part. Um, and this is purely disappointing from the context of your and I's relationship. Um, so the first data on the CTA performance for September came out and they were only down 3.21%. Um, listening to the, our speakers in Chicago and talking to people around there, I was expecting something a lot, lot worse. And it's quite, it's just quite worrying that your prediction is still looking quite good. I, yeah, I, I, I was too. I mean, to be fair, the, the, the trend index that we reported on <coughs> was down yeah. just over 5% for the month. So that was a bigger hit. Although the trend index is actually still up, uh, Double digits for the year, and the, and the general uh, CTA index we reported on is up over eight forty five percent for the year. So I, yeah. I think, bar, barring a pretty spectacular collapse in, in these last few months, uh, I think I think my prediction is going to be good. I'm knocking on all sorts of wood right now, so uh, yeah. I think I think that one's in the bag. CTA. Well, obviously, I mean, keep it keep the normally should have steady for the last few months. Yeah, exactly. I mean, normally for the firms concerned, I would hope they do make money. But um, for the sake of being able to actually write something ridiculing about your prediction, I hope they don't. Um, (laughs) Moving on from that petty little uh, domestic, um, you released a report this week, which I found quite intriguing, which is um, RFX swaps ready for blockchain. Um, yeah. In terms of yeah, in terms of the settlement of the swaps, I mean it's it's an interesting one because obviously we're talking about um, an area of the market in which there's a lot of attention around how we can modernise the market structure. Yes. Yeah, so, so this seems to be a, a theme that you and I have discussed and written on a lot this year, right? Because I, I think there seems to be a sense of um, a recognition that, that the spot FX market is fairly mature at this stage in terms of the technology, in terms of the infrastructure. Um, yes, there are ways we can improve it. We're seeing more algo trading, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's pretty good, right? The pricing's pretty good. The execution is pretty good. But then you look at something like the swaps market, and this became very apparent when I was talking to people for our 20th anniversary edition that we released in Q3, the magazine. Um, but people were saying, you know, that there's been huge progress on the spot end, but FX swaps hasn't changed that much in terms of how it's traded. So, and when you look at the numbers, right, it's, it's a vast segment of the whole FX market. Um, and we see, you know, mm-hmm. platforms addressing NDFs, et cetera, because it's the low hanging fruit to electronify and put on a platform. But FX swaps, as we've discussed before, remains ripe for change. So I, I was kind of interested. We reported initially on, uh, as, as a news story last week, about uh, this firm that was trying, that was partnering. So it's, it's a smaller fintech who, who we haven't really mentioned too much before, partnering with R3, who would probably be more familiar to our, our listeners. Um, so, so they're partnering with R3 to use the quarter system, trying to settle FX swaps by blockchain, but specifically so the, the, the person who founded this venture was on the bank side managing bank uh, liquidity and they were seeing that especially post Basel III and all the regulations that the management of, of intraday liquidity was actually proving very expensive, very ineffective, very inefficient for the bank. Um, 
And so I think it says in the in the market, you know, there's about 3.2 trillion per day of swaps being settled, and about 300. Uh, I think it's only 300 million of that is same day activity. So it's 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 a relatively small part of this big overall market, which I think is what makes this kind of interesting. Because one of the questions that that I put to the people who I was interviewing for this article was, you know, swaps is is well known for being one of the more archaic parts of the FX market. Do you think we're really ready to jump from market that's, you know, in large part voice driven still to a market where we're settling on blockchain technology? That seems like something of a jump. Um, And the response from them was that, like, it's precisely because this part of the market is has lagged so behind the technology that it's actually ready to make this kind of leapfrog towards blockchain technology. Equally, though, in, it's difficult if you if you were trying to address the whole entire swaps market in in one go. Maybe that's too big a project to bite bite off. You have to get too many people around the table. So maybe starting off with this fairly niche part of that market might be the the way forward. So that's why I think it's a particularly interesting project. How many how many um, banks are likely to be involved in it? So this is the thing. It, so it's still early day early days for the the project, right? So they've done they did a, uh, they built their first application, did a trial this early this year. Uh, they wouldn't say which four banks were involved, but it was four banks which they said had a combined okay. balance sheet of two trillion. So we can assume that their the four banks were were fairly sizable. Yeah. Um, so it's. It's still early days. I I was I was pressing them uh, when I was discussing for for a kind of a timeline for how realistic do we think is for anything. Um, there's certain and when it comes to the timeline, there's certain elements that are within their control, which is you know integrating with the banks and doing this workflow, etc. And there's certain elements that aren't, which is the regulatory part, right? Because they said you know yeah. we need to get regulatory approval. They, we've sat down. We've we you know we've been in conversations with the regulant relevates regulators and we haven't heard any objections but not hearing objections is not the same as having regulatory approval right and obviously yeah. a, a lot of the banks won't go near a project like this I mean, they'll talk to it and they'll engage but no one's going to sign on the dotted line as it were um, until you've got that final regulatory approval so that's going to be a big hurdle from them so while I think this is an interesting project I think that this is more something on a let's say like you know, like a two-year horizon before we see something very meaningful come from this. If I had to guess, okay. yeah. I mean, it's there's a few there's a few <clears throat> things spring to my mind on this. Um, firstly, I think they're looking at the part of the market that really does need looking at. Um, we've said before in this podcast, and I've written about it before. There is a a school of thought that says that the execution landscape in FX swaps is not that bad because most people on the bank side, on the dealer side and the customer side, are dealing at or close to mid, um, you know, taking into account the relevant credit and risk charges that go into it. So I kind of get the, um, the, the idea of going, if you're going to revolutionize this or disrupt this, disrupting the settlement space. So a couple of questions. What would this mean for CLS? Because CLS is kind of trying to build the same thing. Is this going to be competition? Um, I. That's a great question. Um, I think this. I don't know because I haven't spoken to, to CLS about it directly. Um, I think it 
it would be competition. Again, yeah. I don't know because because this is addressing like a very specific part of the market. And again, actually, yeah. this is one reason why it actually might have legs, right? Which is because we talked before. We talked. You and I have talked before, and you've you've made the argument that. You know, like there's some people on on the dealer side that want to change swaps execution, but actually, for a lot of people on the client side, that they don't see much of a problem. They're happy with how things execute um, because they're doing this is uh, interbank, right? It might be easier to get people around the table and make the case for them as why it needs to be done. Um, yeah. Now, I think the CLS initiative is actually a broader initiative. About getting different currency pairs to trade, so I don't, I don't think the overlap is huge right now, but I'm not sure about how the two initiatives would actually interact. Yeah, because I mean, it strikes me that CLS had to jump through a tremendous amount of regulatory hoops before that, you know, because they were noted as a critical market infrastructure, weren't they? And to do the same, well, I guess you could argue the regulators have been there before. So the process might be a bit quicker, but to actually um, to do the same would require a lot of work, which I guess lends itself to your two-year, you know, guesstimate in terms of how long we could before something actually comes of this. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting was the, and I think it's a smart move to go to four or a small number of institutions because again, if you and this is exactly the same as it is in the dealing space, as you just pointed out. The problem in the swaps market, from for my money, is in the interdealer space, and that's where the big numbers are transacting. You know, we're we're handling the customer flow, we're settling that the customer's okay, but we have huge sort of capital burdens, huge collateral issues, um, you know, liquidity issues between the major dealers when it comes to settling. So, if we can if we can solve this problem for the top eight, you're probably taking a tremendous chunk of risk out of the market and making it a lot more efficient. And, and I think the other reason why this is interesting is is once you prove that it works and you prove the value of it for this kind of one segment we're talking about, I think then the the case for expanding it becomes easier for everybody yeah. involved, you know, both on the bank oh, side, I mean, on if the fintech side, on the yeah. regulatory side. Well, it's same-day settlement, isn't it? I mean, the fact that all of a sudden, you know, you're looking again, if you can, if you can sort of, autom- you know, this atomic settlement that they're looking at, you know, in, in a few central banks, the Bank of England looked at it um, a couple of years ago, and I think he's still, he's still looking at it. Um, you know, I mean, as we go to revolutionize the payment system, then it has to feed through to, um, I guess, settling trades, you know, as they're, you know, as they're executed, we lo- all of a sudden we lose Tomnex. Maybe we go to, um, you know, today next, today's spot or something like that. We, we, everything goes to real time settlement. I'm not sure. I mean, it's, um, well, well, just, just in general, one of the things that, that came out when I spoke to a lot of people for the 20th anniversary magazine edition that we did, uh, the number of people who said to me that, that the whole T plus two settlement cycle thing in, in this day and age feels Slightly ridiculously yeah. outdated, but but equally, yeah. so so one of the people that that we spoke to for an article we wrote about kind of people from the FX world who've moved into the crypto space, they were talking about the fact that that the whole T plus two thing seems hopelessly, um, you know, seems like a hopeless throwback to them. But they're also saying it's to, to move such a large market and such a large industry from T 
T plus two to T zero, it's going to be a, a kind of a Herculean task just for everyone to get around to, even if, you know, the technology is there and we can do it, you know, we could in theory do it tomorrow. It's still a big ask to like move everything over to that way. Well, the fact is you've got a bunch of participants out there that are trading intraday and they don't know what their end of day position is. Um, if you get to a situation where everything is going to be instantaneously settled, you still have to have some sort of window to allow people to trade it, which right me. So you still have that sediment risk intraday because otherwise you're going to see that a lot of these players disappear from the market because there is going to be a cost of sediment attached. And no matter how, how efficient we make it, there will be a cost of sediment. And if I'm, um, I mean, it'd be interesting for someone like a high frequency trader. If you're sitting there doing 20,000 trades a day in spot and you've got to settle them all, or, the, you know, or even if you've got to settle a thousand of them, that suddenly becomes a hell of a burden, a cost burden. Now, some people might argue that's, you know, might argue with us that's not the worst thing in the world, but we do need to look at the sort of market structure in terms of why some people are trading. You know, these people don't necessarily want instantaneous settlement. Um, they're probably happy T plus zero. They'll just trade on a, you know, an aggregated netted basis. At the end of the day, how much do I owe you? How much do you owe me? Um, but then I think there's also a psychological knock-on from that. For instance, if you've got these HFTs that are maybe ARB in the world, and they're suddenly in a situation where at the end of every trading day or every trading window, they go to all their counterparties going like, okay, so um, let's settle this up. And every single trading window, the, the uh, counterparty is giving this HFT firm $20,000. Well, that's going to raise awareness of what's going on and will make it harder for them to operate. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds a really good idea and I, I totally accept your point around how long it could take because um, we do need to look at, you know, there's going to be companies out there that require um, settlement in the future. They're, they're, they're trading, their, they're hedging their cash flow. There's going to be companies out there that are trading this for, you know, intraday and we must take these these into account before we go any further. So I guess it'll be an interesting one. I mean, we at least we're in a world now, and you'll know this more than I, but at least we're in a world now where people are actually starting to use blockchains rather than just talk about what they could be used for. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like after that, that kind of hype cycle that probably peaked, I know, like late 2016, um, and then died down a bit. I think I think people have really winnowed down the areas of the market where actually this technology could make a difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's telling if you read the interview, uh, uh, Brian Nolan, who's who, uh, one of the co-founders of Fintium, the firm who's doing this, you know, he, he was working in this bank and he had, he said he had this problem of intraday liquidity and he was seeing the issues there in his head. And then blockchain came along. He started learning about that and started reading, realizing the applications for that. Rather, rather than, you know, as we've discussed before, the accusations often, you know, blockchain people looking for a problem to solve. This was a yeah. case where someone had a problem they were looking to solve, learned more about, you know, distributed ledger technology, yeah. and they realized, oh, hey, actually, this could actually be useful for this problem that I've been grappling with for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, as always, with new technology ideas, it's, it's exciting and it's always good when you get people who are very evangelical about it and will try and change the world. I would 
just in closing this little segment, I would turn around and point out they will face one of the oldest problems known to mankind when they try and roll this product out, and that is, what do you do when there's no one on the other side of your trade, as we've seen in the repo market recently? Um, it's all very well mashing trades and selling them intraday, but what are you going to do when there's no one on the other side? And it suddenly becomes a bit of an issue. That's for another time. Um, uh, so then a piece I wanted to ask you about, which was... Um, so I read your article, and, and apparently uh, ESMA is going to put uh, spot effects in, in its regulation. Is that right? Well, consult, there's a consultation paper out asking whether they should include spot effects in the market abuse regime. Right. Um, and they they make some they make the arguments pro and con to be fair to them it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's a um a regulator just you know i guess grabbing a market to regulate the way you see sometimes um in other in other parts of the world um but what they're basically saying is okay look you know should should we take into account spot effects and that would remain um <clears throat> reporting Trades. It would okay. mean that you'd have the the relevant like national authorities, you know, like um, Baffin. Um, I think it's Finsa, and there's several. I mean, all the national competent authorities, as they call them, would be able to actually supervise and sanction market abuse. Now, I think sanctioning market abuse is not a problem. Um, the challenge they have is going to be um, actually. How do you monitor the spot effects market? And do you set any thresholds on it? Because I've been speaking to a few people about it this week. I, I wrote a column on it on Monday and got some feedback on that. And it seems to me that this this would create a huge problem, not only for the industry, but also for the regulator or regulators. Because the industry, there's probably a solution there that they could turn around and say, actually, you know what, that's fine. We can do this. There's reporting there. All we've got to do is add spot effects to it. And if you talk to um, the major banks, they kind of look at spot effects from a regulatory standpoint under all the sort of MIFID, um, MAR, you know, EMEA rules anyway. So they probably would just be a question of adding another pipe, and <clears throat> that pipe would have to take a lot of capacity. How well do regulators be able to handle the physical number of trades? and be able to monitor those trades, I think it becomes a real issue. And that's just if we're at an institutional level because, you know, I guess MAR is more about wholesale markets, but ESMA's, or the European, the regulator's brief is to look after individuals as well, you know, the end user. So where do you draw the line? Do you, do you suddenly have a threshold that says, okay, every transaction has to be reported? Um, which means if I go to the airport and get royally ripped off by whatever provider I choose and pay away eight you know, and deal in the sterling Aussie at a rate it's never traded that in the history of mankind, yeah. then is that mar- is that market abuse? Have I got have those transactions got to be reported? Because if they do, then all of a sudden nothing, you know, they're creating a huge rod for their own back. Um and one that, frankly, I don't think they could handle. You know, maybe the FCA, maybe the Swiss, maybe the Germans, maybe the French. But when you get to the smaller European markets, are they going to be able to really handle the level of trades that may be going through? Especially if you happen to be, you know, a country with an HFT sitting in there. 
you know, how well would Holland go, for instance? You know, they've got a few HFTs there. And it's it's not obvious to me that this would work really well. Now, the broader picture is, obviously, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, obviously, Esma points out that the spot FX market has been subject to some abuse um, in previous years. And they're talking in the chat rooms. Um, now, as we noted last week, there actually hasn't been a conviction over the chat rooms. Um, there's been fines paid, but there hasn't, hasn't been any sort of convictions or, or proper sanctions applied to individuals for their conduct in that. Um, but they're clearly looking at that um, period of time and saying, okay, so we should be looking at this. I would argue the FX Global Code has done it for them and that the best solution for everyone, frankly, including ESMA and national authorities, would be for them to do what the FCA did and said, okay, we've looked at the FX Global Code. We think it represents a good set of principles. Therefore, that will be our grounding for market abuse. And so if, anybody, if anyone complains to us about what's going on, then they will be the guidelines that we will use. I think that could be where we'll end up. Does does it make you because Spot FX has, has largely been <coughs> exempt from regulations, yeah. and I know I know you know there's this thing people like talk about a self-regulated market, but you know we've had all these fines that the firms who operate in this market are regulated, even if the market itself isn't directly regulated. Um, does it yeah. make you nervous that authorities are now looking at this as a potential area to start kind of pushing into existing regulations? Um, I think it will be foolish to say it doesn't, or we shouldn't be nervous about it. Um, I kind of hope, as I said, that the upshot of this is this probably is going to be something that's not worth it, not worth you know the, the time and resources that we be that we that it would take. Um, I kind of see it more as a sort of Damocles, as in this could be what happens. You know, for instance, this consultation paper wouldn't even exist if there was more abuse in the foreign exchange market. If we if we suddenly you know unveil another set of market abuses around manipulation, inappropriate sharing of information, abusing last look, whatever it may be, then I, this consultation paper doesn't exist. Esma turns around and says, bang, you had your chance with Global Code, we're now regulating you. And the outcome will be worse for everyone. And, and you know, don't get me wrong, they wouldn't be alone in that. The U.S. would be straight in there as well. So, yes, it does make me slightly nervous um, because, you know, as an industry, we are kind of, you know, at the um, behest of the, of the weakest link, aren't we? It just takes one or two in the wrong place to do the wrong thing, and all of a sudden it all comes piling down again. Um they probably would need to bring the other regulators with them, I think, okay. if they did that. <clears throat> and that may not be as easy as it sounds. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think certainly I would encourage anyone in the industry to feed back to the consultation. I think it's – let me just check on it. End of November. I think it's the end of November that it has to be in by. Because I think, you know, it's – it's important that ESMA understands that the industry is doing its self-regulating bit. There are people signed up to the global code. Um, and I think if ESMA actually turns around and says, 
we're going to adopt the Global Code as our guidelines, that would also encourage more buy-side firms to maybe adopt it as well and sign a statement of commitment because ESMA is their regulator, as is the FCA in the UK. So, um, yeah, nervous, but I think you know it should be taken as a warning shot rather than as um, a direct threat at this stage in time, to my mind anyway. So we shall see. Um, continuing our tennis match of stuff we read that each other wrote, um, your piece on the dollar's potential erosion as a reserve currency um, kind of made me smile, actually, because I've been reading such things. I think I started reading these things in 1997 when the euro was really first mooted. And they seem to come around every other every other year. What's different about this one? So, so yeah, I mean, and I think I think there's like a flutter of these articles uh, every time you know, you know, the the Remnimbi gets included in the FDR basket, and suddenly it's like, oh, we're gonna is this the start of the erosion of the U.S. dollar's um, you know importance in, in the global financial system and as a reserve currency, etc. So I think what's interesting here is it's the arguments being made against the backdrop of these trade wars. Right, and so yeah. um, I, I so so they use the example of, of how when the British Empire was at its peak, actually the you know the pound lost its dominant position as a, as a kind of the the currency of of choice of kind of the world. But I I, I kind of spoke to, to one of the people who wrote the article, and I said, yeah, but it's kind of a, to my mind a poor example because um, the the global financial system was not in any way. Uh, as globalized and kind of linked, uh, interlinked as it is now. So I don't know if that's really. And it was also the direct result of a world war. Yeah, but 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 they made the point was that it it, it lost. Uh, it was it was the result of a phase of deglobalization. And during these phases of deglobalization is when you can actually have some interesting changes in the currency market. Uh, okay. So that, yeah. that's why I think there's an interesting element here. It's like, okay, well, what does this, this deglobalization mean? To my mind, I think what's actually more interesting, and so the actual title of the the paper was called, um, it's called The Next Digital Superpower Scenarios for the U.S.-China Conflict and Implications for the Global Economy. I actually think one of the interesting things uh, when we talk about, think about reserve currency is, uh, I, and we've talked about this before, is, what happens in the digital asset space and in the cryptocurrency space, right? Because we, we touched on this before when when Facebook was proposing its Libra cryptocurrency. But mm. but if if we for a moment accept the argument that there's going to be an increase in cryptocurrencies, digital assets, tokens, whatever you want to call it, some kind of digital digital uh, asset, some kind of digital yeah. um, currency. If there is going to be an increase in that, particularly for cross-border payments, is there an, is there an opportunity there for someone other than the U.S. and China would be the most obvious example here to actually to actually get in and and back one particular crypto to become that that reserve or that like main payment mechanism? That's what I think is is more interesting when we start to think about the digital space. Yes, I, I don't I don't personally. See the erosion of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency anytime soon. Although I think 
I think the weaponizing of the currency by the U.S. and the current trade wars will only harm its status as that. But I think what's going to be interesting is the battle for supremacy in this kind of digital sphere. Hmm. So many things to ponder there. Firstly, um, ain't going to happen. I cannot see... What ain't going to happen? You know, I mean, you're China backing one particular currency and the rest of the world going, oh, okay, fine, we'll go with that. We'll take, you know, this is the sort of evangelical taking the politics out of the situation, which kind of puts us somewhere near la-la land because you know, the fact remains that, yes, China is a huge part of the global economy and an increasing part of the global economy, but there are also, to really have an impact, you're going to have to take the Eurozone and probably the US with you to to make it significant enough, and I can't see that happening. Um, secondly, the growth in digital assets, yes. I mean, maybe what we could be looking at is a digitalized IMF currency. You know, a current, a payments version of the SDR or whatever, um, which is truly global, would have the United Nations back in and, um, but there's so many national interests at stake here, um, that I'd, I'd really struggle to see who would get that over the line. Um, the other point I'd make as well is that if the US is trying to weaponize its currency, it's not doing a great job because the dollar's going up and at the moment it doesn't look like it's going down. Um, anytime soon. So I think there's a problem there. And I think my last point would be um, on this one is um, there is a sheer numerical problem to replacing the dollar. And that is, yeah, I mean, if you look at reserve managers around the world, they are looking, they're desperate for, di for diversification. Crypto at the moment is not a diversification play for these guys because <clears throat> it doesn't have the market depth. And that is a bit of a chicken-egg situation. I grant, I, I, I totally accept your point there. Um, but they're putting less into dollars. They're putting more into euros, putting more into, you know, Aussie, for instance. And, and in, maybe even at these levels, they're putting money into sterling. Who knows? But the thing is, their reserves have grown at such a huge pace that even by reducing their dollar demand, they're increasing. You know, so even by, by though they're reducing their dollar demand, the the overall demand for dollars is still going up. And so the um, numbers so, are so huge that I don't see how we get a serious shift away from you know what is it thirty percent euro. I, I don't see it in terms of the you know, traded currencies. I'm not sure how we see a big shift in that. Um, so, so while I, I agree with you on, I don't see a particularly shift, big shift in the dollar. Uh, I mean, just just looking at the statistics on BIS, it's it's been you know in the past, like, I don't know, thirty years has maybe maybe been a one percent change either yeah. way in terms of its its kind of market share of of, of overall currency. So I don't see it, it's heavily embedded in terms of the weaponizing. I think you could argue maybe the U.S. hasn't been that effective, but it's not for lack of trying. And, and you see, you know, the pressure <laughs> they're trying to exert on. But, but, but Iran is is yeah. the case uh, in point, right? Where you know Europe didn't want to go with the U.S. on breaking that deal, but because of the position of the dollar, it's actually been really hard for them to try and find workarounds and salvage the deal. So it definitely has had its impact. On that note. 
we'll close up this week's podcast. Um, maybe you can download us from the iTunes store or off the PL website. Um, thanks very much for listening. We will be back next week.